0: Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm Ryan Dwight chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical illness, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share with you information that will help you take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Respiratory Inspirations. I'm your host, Raid Dwight chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And our topic for today is non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And I have two special guests, uh, Dr. Cindy Miranda, who is an infectious disease specialist and the leader of the Granuloma Delta group in our Infectious Disease Department, and Dr. Joe Kabaza, who's a pulmonologist with a special interest in non mycobacteria, the topic of our discussion today. Welcome, Joe and Cindy. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start uh, with the very basics, as for those who either never heard of it or heard of it but do not know what it is. What is NTM, or non tuberculosis mycobacteria?
1: NTM, as it says, it's a, it's a type of bacteria. It is related to the more popular type of mycobacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis. The difference, however, is that NTM, they are not contagious. They are generally not passed on from person to person. And these mycobacteria are typically in our environment. So they're in the soil, water. They could be in their municipal water supply and household plumbing, actually. So it's in the environment. Uh, you generally acquire it through the environment. So that's inhalation of soil or inhalation of aerosolized water that contains the mycobacteria.
0: So does anybody get it? Am I, are we all at risk of that or is it only some people?
1: You know, Everyone is exposed to mycobacteria or non-tuberculous mycobacteria, but not everyone gets it. So again, there are certain types of patients that do get it. And these are usually those with chronic lung conditions, such as what we call COPD
0: Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema,
1: yeah. Yes, or emphysema. Patients with underlying, like, let's say, lung damage that uh, they might have, you know, who have been diagnosed uh, with what we call bronchiectasis, where their airways are abnormal, can get these types of infections. Some patients with, let's say, weakened immune systems are at risk for these infections.
0: Yeah. Uh, Joe, do you want to add to that? I know it's like, that's your thing.
2: Yeah. So, so we're all, I think the, the takeaway is that our whole globe is covered with NTM, these kind of family of, of bacteria. I think of them as kind of wimpy, slow growing bacteria that don't make people very sick. And we're all exposed to them all the time. And people with intact airways and, and normal lung function, we breathe them in or swallow or what have you. And then we just cough. Our, our natural Our lungs naturally sweep up things that we breathe in and and fluids we make. But in people where that process is impaired, sometimes those bacteria that we all come across end up drifting lower into the lungs and kind of setting up in the lower airways and slowly growing over time. And that mainly occurs in the people who have some wrong with their lungs in the way that clears that process. But so we're all exposed to them and they're not dangerous alone in themselves. But, you know, if not noticed and, and allowed to kind of sit in our airways for long periods of time, that's when some people can become symptomatic. I want to revisit one point that Cindy mentioned is that these are not
0: contagious you don't catch it from another person I just want you maybe to elaborate on that a little bit because it's something you get from the environment not from other people unlike tb t- tuberculosis which definitely is a highly infectious and dangerous disease yeah
2: right yeah this is more pertinent to the each individual's own immune system and the local Way that their airways are functioning, so there are very rare. Just in the there's been like one or two cases in the cystic fibrosis world where maybe there has been a spread, but largely this is thought of a non-contagious illness that it's unique to the individual host that might have their own you know issues with with airway clearance and how how their how their lungs work and um, not spread person to person. Yeah, that's great.
0: And I know uh, Cindy. In a prior conversation, we talked about. Not only patients with lung disease, but certain individuals, even without lung disease, are susceptible to this. You know, can you elaborate on that a little bit for our audience? Yeah.
1: Yeah, So interestingly, NTM lung disease can can also occur in women with no obvious risk factors, and in the medical world, this is known as that Lady Windermere syndrome, which you might have heard about. And these are typically postmenopausal women who are tall, they're slender. And they have certain like, breastbone abnormalities, such as pectus excavatum and scoliosis. So NTM lung disease can also occur in these uh, group.
0: So if a um, patient or a family member wonder, like somebody has a cough or in symptoms, how, when should they suspect uh, that they have NTM and maybe check with their doctor? Is there any, any particular symptoms or anything in mind?
2: Well, I, I think you know, chronic cough is a very common complaint, and, and really there are very common initial causes up front to that. And getting that initial workup, I think we're pretty good at working up and treating asthma and acid reflux, sinuses and allergies, upper airway cough syndrome, and even making sure they're not on a on an ACE inhibitor. But once you know, ACE meaning one of the blood pressure medications. Some blood pressure medications can cause cough. Yes, yeah, that family of blood pressure medications can cause a dry cough um, in people. Those are kind of the four first things we look at in somebody with chronic cough. And if somebody is not and res- chronic, and things usually last more than a, a three weeks or a month, you are thinking. Yeah, I think generally we, we think of it. I mean, I like think of it in my I had maybe at, at least two or three months. Two to three months. Okay. So people who are coughing for a long period of time, those are the initial things we we look for and try to treat and work up. People who are not responding to those treatments or having workups that are suggesting anything is wrong in those areas, that's when my next thought is, could there be a slow-growing lung infection like NTM? I think what happens often is patients keep coughing despite the above workup. They end up in this kind of inhaler vortex where I think they just more inhalers just keep getting added on and on without improvement in symptoms and that to me is a red flag as well that maybe there is an infection and so that's when I'm you know very quick to think about
0: so um, that's what the, that's very helpful from the vantage point of the patient or the family member you know how do they bring this up the conversation with the doc, their family physician or primary care, what should they tell them? How do they kind of have them raise the index of suspicion?
2: I mean, a cough that's worsening or not improving for you know, at least three months despite having a, a workup, I mean, that's when they've got to ask and push for, for something more to be done. And I think generally that next step would be a CAT scan of the lungs. Yeah. Um, so that is definitely part of my you know, long-standing cough workup because that is the way we're going to find out if there's something physically within the lungs driving this picture. Once we've ruled out asthma, uh, reflux, uh, sinus allergy disease, and reviewed their medication list. So, Cindy, uh, back to you. So, what kind of
0: testing you do if somebody like with these symptoms present to you, and you know, what would how do what do you do to evaluate them? What, what could a family or a patient expect when they present with these symptoms?
1: Of course, as Joe said, you know, the CAT scan, asking for a CAT scan of the chest, and that's what we usually do is get a CAT scan of the chest for these patients. The other thing to remember is to ask for also mycobacterial culture. So not just your regular sputum,
0: sputum, sputum
1: culture, here? which would test for bacteria, but sometimes they are not able to grow these mycobacteria that we're talking about. So it takes a, another type of culture, to grow these mycobacteria, it's generally what's called AFB sputum culture, which stands for acid-fast bacilli. But that's a term that is used to test for mycobacteria, and that's one thing that we order for. We also, of course, other so there's uh, your. We look at your symptoms. We look at your the culture. We would send that your cat's kind of the chest to look inside your lungs, and then of course we also look at other blood work. You know, getting your blood count, looking at your liver and kidney function tests are also important, especially if we're thinking about treatment.
0: And Diego, do you want to comment on that? Yeah,
2: Yeah, and that's a a good point that a patient can advocate for themselves beyond the, the CT scan is if they are producing sputum, they should ask if that sputum can be tested because I think very often many of us, and in, 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 even in pulmonary, you know, don't check sputum cultures regularly, even in people who produce sputums. So that is one way, if you have a long-standing cough that is productive, asking if that can be cultured to look for bacteria, and especially the mycobacteria. Yeah, so, and usually uh, most of these are addressed by a primary care physician
0: or family physician, but let's say if a patient wants to get a specialist attention. Here we have a pulmonary doc, an ID doc, you know, which one should they start with? Start with
2: usual. Yeah, I think definitely pulmonary. Yeah, I mean, so, (laughs) you know, because, you know, pulmonary disease is generally what makes you susceptible to developing NTM. So having the pulmonary side fully worked up And then also get a diagnosis of their suspicion. That's going to make it a lot smoother ride for the patient, but also once they do see an infectious disease specialist. Because it's nice to have a diagnosis to give Dr. Miranda when you see her versus her having to work up and test the lungs. So I think chronic cough, especially productive cough, shortness of breath, what have you, if it's not responding, seeing a lung doctor first to help try to get that diagnosis, I think will be a lot smoother and easier for one they do see an infectious disease doctor to help treat it. So that's what the lung doctor says. What does the ID
0: doctor <laughs> say? Do you agree with him, uh, Cindy?
1: Yes, I, I do agree. And in fact, we do have some patients that come to us from the primary care physician. And they. what's surprising to me sometimes is they have no involvement at all of a pulmonologist or a lung doctor. So I recognize the importance of partnering with a pulmonologist. And so in generally, I do refer them to one of our pulmonologists to partner with me in helping care for these patients.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a true team effort. And I think patients can run into problems in regions where ID or pulmonary view it as just the other specialties issues. Actually, both of our issues, and we both bring a lot to the table at helping kind of have successful treatment long-term. So I think it's, it's not a just pulmonary or just ID issue. It, it, it's both. And so having both expertise, I think, will really benefit patients in the long run. Yeah,
0: I like that approach. I think that's what really allowed us to be very successful here at the Cleveland Clinic, is approaching this as a team instead of like just pointing uh, you know, in different directions. So now the patient came, they saw the consultant, and then they were identified that they have non tuberculous mycobacteria or NTM. Well, how do we treat Cindy? So
1: so treatment, first of all, and uh, Joe will talk to you about this later the, There is an important component And that's why I refer my patients to the pulmonologist As the airway clearance, which becomes important Which I'll let Joe talk about more But the treatment involves Multiple medications, actually, more than one is what we use to treat these non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections, and they're typically given for a long period, for a long period of time. So most commonly, for the most common NTM infection, which is MAC, which you'll hear about a lot, or Mycobacterium avium complex, and we refer to that as MAC for short, which I think a lot of our patients are familiar with. Typically, it's treated with three drugs, such as, and the names of these drugs are azithromycin, ethambutol, and rifampin. These are the main drugs that we use to treat MAC. And there are, of course, side effects associated with these drugs. For example, for ethambutol, one of the things that we are careful about is a patient's vision. So we monitor your vision while you're on ethambutol. Rifampin can cause orange urine. So that's something that we discuss uh, with our patients. And azithromycin can, can sometimes uh, affect your hearing. Again, not all of these things are going to, to happen, but it's, it's good to be mindful of these um, side effects. And we do closely monitor our patients for these side effects while on treatment.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Joe, I'm going to just have you maybe follow up on that. These kind of unusual maybe side effects, vision, urine, and, you know, and hearing make people wonder, is the treatment uh, really worse than the disease? And I think there's a misconception out there about that. Can you maybe help us clarify that?
2: Yeah. So, anyone who has uh, NTM or MAC certainly has read out there or been told by providers that treatment's worse than their disease and they should sit back and, and not treat. But I think the reality is that for some people, uh, the disease is is, is worse than than treatment. And those are kind of important discussions to be had. And because if you are in that category of high risk of progression, which would be certain changes on the CAT scan, high amount of bacteria on the sputum, or uh, or if you have a low, uh, low body weight, I mean, those are categories where we know if we put you in this observing boat, there's a high risk of progression of Of the lung disease and you know what i've found which was really new to me because i also kind of came out of training thinking treatment was worse than the disease for most but is that most patients do tolerate treatment so it can sound scary thinking or like you're going to very likely do poorly and one of my first ever mac patient that i diagnosed i still remember vividly uncontrolled COPD, recurrent exacerbations, and then we started sending cultures, and they they all were growing MAC, and I, you know, had urged him to get and consider uh, to be treated. You know, he's an older man, uh, and one of his only hobbies now is just reading. So even though the risk of ethambutol affecting his vision is, is small, most people don't get that more serious side effect, he did not want to take even that small risk of affecting one of the few remaining things he gets enjoyment from. So he decided to defer treatment. So watchful waiting was appropriate for him because of how how his values and, and he would rather tolerate the symptoms of his disease. Then potentially take on a a side effect, though small. So I think it's very it's important to have these discussions and to understand from your doctors to understand what each route might entail. You know, I think we used to just tell patients what route to take, but I think it's very important to know have an understanding of what treatment would entail or what waiting would entail and what kind of monitoring will be done if you're in that watchful waiting category. But I think the disease can be Quite bad for people who are not treated, so important to know your options yeah, so what i'm hearing from you is that definitely there are medications
0: have side effects, but we have to weigh even the disease itself is serious, and progression of the disease needs to be taken into account you know when when making the uh, treatment decisions. A lot of patients would ask. Is there anything else I can do other than taking drugs? And, you know, I think Dr. Miranda mentioned something about airway clearance. Can you elaborate on that a little
2: bit? Yes. And that's always, I think, the first treatment for NTM lung disease. And the first thing I talk about and educate with patients before I ever reach for an antibiotic. So, you know, patients who have some changes in their airways or lungs that make it hard to clear out mucus and infection, you know, we need to artificially help the lung in, in coughing that stuff up. And that's what we refer to uh, an airway clearance regimen. These are different treatments that are not antibiotics that are physically going to help you cough up and remove these mycobacteria from your lungs. And that is the first treatment. And studies have showed, and most of the studies in NDM are, are small, but but studies have shown that people with mild disease can clear their culture just by doing a good airway clearance regimen. So it, it is important Important to understand that there are non medicinal things, non antibiotic uh, approaches that you can take as a patient to increase the odds of clearing the infection without antibiotics, but also increasing the odds that antibiotics are successful if you do start treatment, because getting rid of that mucus and bacteria from your airways is is so important. You know, we could probably spend a whole nother hour talking about airway clearance and, and bronchiectasis, but it really centers around breathing treatments that help make your sputum less dry and more wet and doing maneuvers that help you cough up that sputum as it gradually becomes more movable. Yeah, it looks like
0: something practical that patients uh, can do. Back to you, Cindy. You know how do I know like if whether we go the watchful waiting approach or we go the drug treatment approach whether I'm getting better or worse you know how can I uh, how can you monitor my symptoms how do I know as a patient or as a family member taking care of a patient whether they're getting better or not
1: So first of all there are certain patients that need to be started right away on treatment And uh, if you have what's called a cavitary form of the disease, you have cavities in your lungs, which will be seen on x-ray or a CAT scan of the chest, you need to be started on treatment right away. Other things that increase your risk, like um, if you have uh, low weight or something to do with your cultures, the burden of the mycobacteria in your lungs might make us want to treat. So once you're on treatment, like I said, because the drugs have multiple side effects, you know, other things I, I forgot to mention, like GI symptoms, you know, what they mean is like nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. Those are some things that can happen. I do stay in close communication with my patients because I that is key to helping manage these side effects because there are maneuvers that we can do as physicians to help you tolerate the drugs better. So it's important to talk to your physicians about it. So what we monitor as, as, as you're on treatment is we monitor one most important is how you're feeling. So are your symptoms getting better? You may, you may not get better right away, but we expect you to at least over time feel that there is an improvement in your respiratory symptoms.
0: More subjective, you yes, yes. better appetite, you're not feeling as good, more energy, that kind of stuff.
1: Yes, and then the other thing, of course, is we talked about cultures earlier, and that's really important to determine how long you're going to be on treatment. So we do check your sputum cultures uh, while you're on treatment, and when you've cleared The mycobacteria from the sputum, meaning we don't find it anymore in your sputum, then usually we treat for a year after we say you've cleared the mycobacteria. So that's why we monitor your sputum cultures. And of course, we also monitor your CAT scan of the chest to make sure that there is some improvement or it hasn't progressed or gotten worse. So those are the things we look at. And then, of course, we also monitor uh, your blood count, liver tests, kidney function tests, um, EKG during the course of your treatment.
0: Maybe something I should have asked at the beginning, but I think maybe for the benefit of our audiences, if you know, for example, you have lung disease, you're at risk of this, is there a way, you, is there anything you can do to protect yourself from even getting it in the first place, Joe? Like, is there anything, anything that people can do day to day to avoid
2: exposure, avoid getting it? Yeah, I think that's the the big question, because it's everywhere in our environment. So how do you avoid something that's in water and soil, and that's, what all of us are exposed to wherever uh, wherever we live, you know I, I think there have been times where patients have been advised to make big lifestyle changes and don 't shower anymore and and to avoid gardening and, and you know, uh, or other things in the outdoors or to but I think we 've kind of found that major lifestyle changes sometimes our know, patients still can get reinfected or infected with these major lifestyle changes because the source can be anywhere. You know, so so I've kind of taken a step back, and, and I, you know, I think if there's things that are easy to do, you know, like like if you're gardening, just have this dampen the soil so less can get aerosolized. If a mask is not too bothersome outside to you, that's that's fine too. I mean, that'll decrease the risk. But I think what's different from a patient who's been identified to have NTM lung disease versus someone who's yet to be diagnosed is that they sh- will be on an airway clearance regimen of some kind for the future. So whatever exposure they have after their diagnosis, it's going to be less, it's going to less have a chance to settle in their lower lungs because they're doing airway clearance. So anything that's exposed is, is more likely to come out. So I kind of, so I don't really recommend big lifestyle changes because people have had really changed their lives tremendously, but still gotten infected or infected or generally reinfected. It's generally people we've uh, identified uh, before, but, so because of that airway clearance emphasis where, you know, if something ends up in your airways, it's less likely going to hang out there because you're mobilizing things regularly w- with airway clearance. So that's kind of how I approach. I don't really make big, unless there's an obvious exposure or source, and that's in a less common setting, like a hot tub lung setting, which is kind of off topic a little bit, but. Anything else to add to that?
1: No, I think Joe is right. I think There's environmental risks uh, everywhere. There are little things that you can do. For example, like what Joe said, it's just wetting the soil so that it doesn't aerosolize. Typically, heating up your water to like greater than one hundred and thirty degrees Fahrenheit is one thing they've talked about. Wearing a dust mask, but again, it's not one hundred percent. You know, it's not a guarantee that you you won't get the NTM infection.
2: And I think something we didn't actually talk about too much was that, you know, acid reflux is something that can increase the odds of developing pulmonary NTM. So thought is we would drink or eat something that has uh, an NTM on it, and then if we're aspirating into the airways, that's a route that it can get down. So I think being vigilant about you know reflux symptoms is important, or having that index of suspicion whether that's present, and that's a slightly different topic, but if we're, even if we're ingesting or drinking a, a water supply, it's all NTM, if we're not aspirating, it's not going to get into our lungs. But that's a... Uh,
0: treat reflux if you have it, basically. Yeah. Suggesting. That's great. Well, thank you both. This has been really very informative. I'm trying to maybe uh, share a few takeaways with our audience today. One is when to suspect non tuberculous mycobacteria infection. If you have a chronic cough, meaning lasting more than two to three months with or without treatment, especially if it's for although it can be non-productive obviously you may not not, you may not always have sputum but usually you do and then sputum testing is really the first step sometimes with or without a CAT scan but you know finding the uh, mycobacteria in the sputum is how you make the diagnosis and you both made an important point about treatment is that really it's a shared decision between the patient and the physician because there are side effects for the medications but also there are downsides to not treating because the disease can progress so it's really you have to to weigh the risks and benefits of both watchful waiting, which can have its own problems, but also treatment, which has its own side effects. Any other thoughts to add to this?
1: For the patients, you know, what I would like for them to, to make sure that they know is when they when somebody tells them they have an NTM infection, is it's very important to ask what kind of NTM do I have? So, and, and the doctors can tell you that, and because it matters what that NTM is as far as how important it is and whether we need to treat it and then to ask for cultures not just a sputum culture but if you ask your doctors for a mycobacterial culture they'll know what that means and that's being proactive in, in your care.
0: All right. Uh, that, let, let that be the last word. Thank you both for joining me today. And thank you to our audience for listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Raid Dwight chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And my guests today were uh, Dr. Cindy Miranda from Infectious Disease, who leads our Delta group focusing on uh, granuloma, and Dr. Joe Kabaza, a pulmonologist with a specific interest in nine tuberculosis mycobacteria, which was the topic of our conversation today. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at TriadwakeMD.